Hello, welcome to Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Scott Cunliffe about a variety of things, including his time working in East Timor in Indonesia, working for an NGO. We talk about mental health and how he's overcome mental health problems in the past through running. And we talk about his 3,000-mile runaway challenge, which has been a runaway success, raising tens of thousands of pounds for good causes. It's a really interesting interview. I really enjoyed speaking with Scott, and uh, he's very open and honest about things, and I really appreciated that too, and I hope you will as well. So without further ado, here is Scott Cunliffe talking about the Runaway Challenge and a variety of other interesting topics. Thank you for, uh, for joining us for Charity Chat today. Um, maybe could you start by talking about your background? Yeah, sure. I've worked for charities, but not really known as charities. In that I, I worked for international aid organisations abroad, uh, largely in Southeast Asia and Indonesia and East Timor and a few other countries around the region. Um, yeah, working for from the United Nations to smaller charities and uh, a couple of British charities uh, and a few a few Americans and uh, so yeah I'm not all that familiar with the charitable sector in the UK mm-hmm. uh, but, I'm, but I'm more familiar with the sector sort of overseas sector and as it pertains to my specialist area of Southeast Asia. And where, where did your interest come from? Did it come from kind of traveling in the area or were you, were you particularly keen to, um, to help specific causes? What, what was your kind of impetus to, uh, to getting involved in the work that you do now? Yeah, you, you guessed it, it's very tough. I think uh, travelling was a trigger, or well, the experiences of travelling in the area were a trigger when I was just in my early 20s, really. And then I, I came back and wanted to, uh, you know, push for a more equal world uh, and was interested in going back to, to Southeast Asia. So I, I enrolled in a, a degree in uh, SOAS at the School of Oriental and African Studies and did Southeast Asian Politics and Development Studies there. Around that time in 2000, 2003, when I finished my masters at SOAS, I, uh, I mean, it was it was the height of transition in Southeast Asia. The Indonesian uh, regime had fallen in 1998, 1999. So there was a lot of aid work around Indonesia. Uh, there was a lot of conflicts that were either just finishing or ending. So there was a lot of post uh, conflict work going on, um, and so there was a lot of countries in transition. You know, transition from uh, authoritarian states into becoming more democratic states. So it was an interesting time. It was also a fortuitous time for myself as a fresh graduate uh, with my ears sort of pricked up and ready to go. There was a lot of opportunities. And I, I learned to speak Indonesian uh, while I was traveling there, really, but I always carried that on. So I had going into the sector out there with uh, with language skills as well. So, yeah, it was... Uh, it was an interesting time back at the you know the, t- the millennium time really it was uh, so I was out there for fifteen twenty years. Wow, wow! And in in that time, have you have you done a whole different host of roles, or have you specified in one particular area? I'd say I've specialised in being a regionalist really in the sense I was very interested in the politics of of Indonesia and the politics of of East Timor as East Timor became independent from in- Indonesia. Uh, so I'd say I was more regionalist uh, in, uh, from that I 
kind of I was interested in the politics and the intersection of politics and development. Um, and from that, I, I worked in various roles across that line, really. I, I mean, in the, in the governance sector, human rights sector, and mainly in the sort of, yeah, in the, in the governance sector of, of development and development, in the East Timor sense of the development of the country. You know, the country was, was pretty much new from 2002. Um, and then in the Indonesian case, um, in the transition uh, from being an authoritarian state into a, a democratic country, uh, you know, it's now the fourth largest democracy in the world, and uh, its election process has been going quite well. Uh, and it's having problems in its in the growth of its other sort of dem- democratic sectors, you know, in human rights and uh, governance and anti-corruption and things. So it's um, yeah, it's interesting to I still follow that, even though I'm, I've been back in the UK for the last year. a lot of similarities or more differences between the cultures there and the culture here definitely differences uh but similarities as well you know i, I think there's there's always uh indonesia especially has been a country that's appropriated from the outside a lot uh, but it's got a very strong sense of who it is it's it's um in itself uh so there's definitely you know there's always a, a one eye on the on the west and uh, wanting to be like the west in one way but there's also a one eye on the uh, on the Middle East and and being wanting to be similar to uh, with being large, largely a Muslim country being similar to uh, you know in the centre of Islam uh, so you've got different strands of you know transnational strands going of politics and development going into somewhere that's huge and vast like Indonesia and obviously this this about ten percent of the population there is non-Muslim so there's strong strands of Christianity going in there. Uh, Hinduism in Bali and uh, a little bit of Buddhism as well. So it's it's very multi-religious, um, and that hits into the culture in a massive way. But yeah, you'd see, you know, in the especially in the the last, I don't know, since, since the advent of the smartphone, you could say, you know, and social media and apps, uh, Indonesia, especially in the where the movers and shakers are in the big cities, it's very well connected. Uh, you know, the fourth, I think, the fourth biggest Twitter uh, country in the world. They're, you know, they're very much into the social media sort of flow of uh, of uh, digital goods, yeah, or, do, or of uh, culture from from all parts of the world is very quick and very advanced there. It was the the work that you were doing out there has has that got the, a link with the um, the three thousand mile runaway challenge? Yeah, sure. I guess I started running while I was over there. I I, uh, I think becoming a sort of. Uh, a burnt out 30 year old or 34, 35 year old about 10 years ago um, I, I was getting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder from working in conflict zones mm. and, um, and I had a couple of bouts of depression uh, unbeknown to myself but it was actually depression at the time but yeah running was, a, uh, was something that I took up about 10 years ago uh, and that grew as, as a big part of my life and a big part of my balance in my life uh, in working in the sector out sector out there but yeah eventually I'd, I had enough I'd, I'd had enough about two years ago and I kind of uh, had enough about depression and uh, it was time to, to look for pastures different uh, I think I'll always be going back out to Indonesia throughout my life but to, to have it as a home anymore was not really an option I don't think um, so yeah I was looking for something different to do and I was yeah thinking about getting into the charity sector in the UK and uh, and for some reason, I, I had a brainwave of, of doing a, a big charitable uh, run myself. Um, 
and that was, I guess, my entry into the charitable sector from starting my own initiative. when you were in uh, Southeast Asia, and was it specifically Indonesia? Is that right? In the last 10 years I was in Indonesia, uh, or the last seven or eight years I was in Indonesia, and then before that I was in East Timor, right, uh, okay. which, used, which is confusing because it used to be part of Indonesia right, um, right. Up, until, up until 1999. Um, so essentially two very similar but different places. And were there, were there mechanisms other than the running that you were using to manage your... your um your depression at that time, or was it? Was it as you say? You, you just you didn't realise that it was depression. Is that right? Yeah, I think you know the amount of awareness that was around, say, ten years ago, was very low. Yeah, even in you know in my privileged kind of forums of being able to tap into to both worlds and being able to tap into sort of uh, the pulse of what's going on in the Western world and then also being glued uh, glued into the uh, you know what was. Indonesia but even then yeah there's very little awareness I think that's even 10 years ago of, of, of you know for how would you diagnose yourself as having depression or would you actually want to admit that you had depression mm-hmm. um, so seeing mental health as or mental, mental health problems as, or challenges as an illness then was for me was was kind of uh, was unknown territory whereas flash forward like another 10 years and it's you know I came back about a year ago to the UK and it's it's all over the news it's you know it's a, it's a hot topic uh, and I guess it's probably a massive hot topic in the charitable sector as well as it being just in in general in the news if you watch uh, TV these days it's it's everywhere so which is a great thing for for people I think making those first steps of acknowledging and um, and not living in denial um, and acknowledging that they do have a problem. Uh, and knowing that they're not on their own, so it's. I think things have come on, but all, over there itself was was very limited. Um, you know, there's still lots of stigma about mental health. Uh, it's it's uh, people will hide it, uh, and and there's very few mechanisms in you know in the, the government there or in uh, social work, social services, or even in the NGO community. Uh, even looking at say the uh, yeah the United Nations sort of. Uh, sustainable development goals there's only a, a minor sort of really men, mention and uh, I think sort of um, is it under the health goal there's only a really minor indicator for mental health which shows that it's not really the main health issue across the developing world whereas at the moment you would you would say that it's one of the, the main uh, issues in the in, in, in the health sector in, in our world yeah in the UK or even in the US at the moment, or in Europe. Talking about running, it's something that uh, I, I tend to do in my, uh, my spare time because I, I like running very much as well. I'm not very, I wouldn't say a particularly uh, long distance runner. I've, I've kind of run a couple of half marathons, but, but for me, um, starting out with running uh, was a very painful experience, and I must have looked like I was in a great deal of pain um, running, uh, even just the first kilometre that I was running um, a couple of years ago when I started. Was it, was it the same for you, or, or was it for you, was, it, was there kind of some kind of catharsis to it with kind of where you were at um, mentally and emotionally at that time? It's funny, really, because one, one, one of my old friends... Uh, 
when I started running, she said, I've never really liked running because everyone who runs past me never seems to be happy. So since then, I've always tried to adopt a smile, you know, <laughs> when I do run. But I think, yeah, it's small steps when you first start. And it is, it's like anything else. You've got to be consistent. And you know that the first time, times you go out, it's going to be the most painful ones because it's all new when you wake in pain after. And you think, oh, I'm not, I don't, I'm not doing this again because it hurts. So you don't go and do it again. Uh, and I think that's the, you know, you need to get through that. It's kind of like quitting smoking. You know, the first few days are, are the most difficult ones. Uh, and then it gradually gets easier and easier. Uh, so, yeah, for sure, it's as a starter, it's not easy. But uh, I, I just uh, found it therapeutic. And, uh, but it was mainly when I connected running with nature that I found it a bit more therapeutic. Um, you know, going out and doing trail running and being out sort of uh, in more sort of uh, quieter, sort of serene areas that, that I really found it to be more therapeutic. And what were, what were these areas like when you first started running? Where, where were you running? Uh, well, I was running on the beach quite a bit, uh, in, luckily in Bali at the time. Uh, that was like 2008, nine. I was kind of based there for a little while. Uh, but also mountains. So Indonesia, there's lots of volcanoes. Um, and lots of mountains and uh, so a lot of the trail events and things were always you know up high and away from where, where most people are and it's very overpopulated in Indonesia so it's not easy to get away from people um, and uh, so yeah it was it was always always in in the hills and in the mountains or, or sometimes on beaches uh, if I was just doing short training things uh, but yeah and then bringing that back here yeah bringing that back here I think it's uh, it's um, it's, we're so lucky. I think Britain's an amazing place, and we've got you know we've got a, a larger network of trails and paths and uh, canal tolls uh, that you can you can get out on. Yeah, so we're we're really lucky that we have we have those facilities here. I'm not trying to make this a, a running podcast, but I do share this uh, this uh, passion for running. Scott, so I was going to ask again with the um, with the running, was was there an element of uh, did you find that there's any part of the kind of camaraderie of doing events with other runners or or the kind of I don't I think this is a kind of a common thing I certainly have, but when I'm running, I'm usually focusing on the uh, the physical rather than the mental. So I'm I'm not I'm but saying that I sometimes do a lot of problem solving in my head as well when I'm running. Were those two aspects um, part of the? the kind of the thing that helps you at that time well at that, at that stage yeah it was very i was uh, running with clubs so it was very social uh but when i started doing this when i came back to britain and started doing the runaway challenge and running to all of the football games uh, i was largely on my own for, for a lot of the time and i think that was purposeful you know i was kind of i wanted to get away from people i wanted to sort of that's where i was finding my own peace uh, but actually through doing the challenge, I kind of gone full circle and because uh, I met so many cool people through doing this challenge and people who ran with me or people who supported me uh, that I, I actually sort of regained my confidence to be a bit more social. Uh, so kind of where I'd been when I first started running a bit of, you know, so I was, I was in a more social setting. For me, it's, it changes. Like sometimes I want to run with people. Um, I want to have that social aspect and sometimes I want to be just be, be out on my own um, with my own thoughts or all away from my thoughts. Um, and like you said, sometimes it's great running for, for being able to, I think you go out in the, 
before work it's great for sorting out sort of your agenda for the day or what you're going to do in a certain meeting or in a certain aspect of your work or your or your personal life um, but also you know i like to be able to get away as well and basically really turn off and uh, get into more of a meditative state um once the you know once the the mileage kicks in a little bit more so really being mindful or being really present in the moment um, is is a real challenge and i think once you can get into that state it's, it's kind of like my yoga really what is the three thousand mile runway challenge and, and you know, what what was it all about well i wanted to i wanted to do something for charity and i wanted to combine my love for running and, and, and the outdoors um but I also wanted to raise a lot of money. Having worked in the sector and been involved in fundraising, I'd been used to raising sort of money as a country director. I'd, you know, you, you, you send a team and you're fundraising. Um, so I'd kind of been, I was a bit strategic with it as well. So I, I thought, I looked at what other people were doing, doing other similar fundraising through running. Um, and people were, you know, if they were doing a massive, like, 3,000-mile challenge, and there's quite a few people out there when you when you dig, dig, dig in, um, they were racing about 30,000, 35,000. I just looked on the website of the London Marathon, and the, the leading uh, fundraiser for the London Marathon in 2019 is on about £35,000, which is phenomenal for just doing a marathon. I'm just saying just, but uh, he, he ran 26 miles in there uh, and under difficult circumstances for the guy who's doing it. But uh, so I, I took that as a benchmark, and I thought, like, if I can raise thirty-five, forty thousand miles, that's uh, forty thousand pounds. That's pretty. You know, you can do something with that. You know, um, and through through. But I, I knew that just through running, uh, that might not be quite enough. So I combined it with football. Uh, so I was running to. I'm a Burnley fan, so I ran to every Burnley away game. So I knew I had a bigger audience by running to football games because the Premier League is massive. Um, and so I knew that I'd have a bigger audience through doing that and uh, and also linking it with the football clubs. There's, there's a lot of money around football uh, and there's a lot of charitable money also around football at the moment. So it's an interesting sector to look at um, in a in, you know, different part of the conversation. Uh, so I, I was luckily, fortunate enough to tap into that. So I raised £60,000 in the end. Wow, um, that's which amazing. Was kind of, quite, kind of, yeah, it was fantastic. And it's kind of like double to what I kind of, seen other people doing so I was but I don't think I would have got so much of a by running 3,000 miles if I hadn't linked it to you know the Premier League and, and football and uh, and the way that it was set up uh, so it's kind of I mean it's a mini sector in itself if you think of like uh, sport fundraising uh, it's, it's massive I, I mean the, the London Marathon in itself is probably the biggest uh, I think they, they even bill it as that don't they the, the biggest uh, single one-day event fundraiser on the planet, um, and they're up to uh, raise up to over. I think they just hit a billion when this year's London Marathon. They were saying, you know, thank you for a billion was like a hashtag. So over the years, there's been a billion pounds raised for uh, through the London Marathon for all different charities. So it's uh, you know when you look at you look at the the potential for you know for sport and combining sport with the charity sector. It's uh, it's something that for me became sort of it just became obvious because I was getting I was starting to get disillusioned with you know with, with the sector or worn down uh, but at the same time uh, I knew I had to have some continuation with the sector and and my sort of therapy was running and my the things that I was really enjoying more was running in um, and running in wild places so I wanted to just combine that and 
So that I was still keeping going with the sector, connecting with the sector that I'd worked in all my life, uh, but also sort of uh, doing some, being an aspect to it that, I, I, that was really giving me value in my, in my sort of personal and social life as well. worked for the um, NGOs and uh, but you know you didn't need to do this as a fundraising event what what led you to do that for and, and what cause were you supporting uh, yeah I, I just there's there's no really way to do it in that um, it was a nine ten month project in that I was running to every away game every Burnley away game so starting from Burnley running to the game so if I was running to, say, Chelsea in London, it's six or seven days. So there's no way you can work through doing that. So it became a kind of, I was seriously underemployed throughout the season as I did this. So it was a full-time charitable project, uh, but without any backing. So it was just basically uh, my idea. And I linked in with uh, Burnley Football Club in the community, which is a charitable sector of, uh, or arm of Burnley Football Club. And all the other Premier League clubs have uh, charity, charities attached to them. Uh, so they get a lot of money from uh, from Premier League, and they they get money from lottery fund, and, and the same as everybody else. You know, they they go to the usual sources of money, uh, but they become quite become quite big play, big players in their own communities, uh, linked to the football club, uh, and they also carry a lot of weight because football fans will will go to uh, charity events if it's through the football club, especially men, yeah, uh, which is not easy getting getting men to go forward to. To issue, in issues like dementia, or uh, but the football club is is a good bridge uh, for bridging between needs and uh, and that's part of their life that's already there. So I, I wanted to tap into that, and uh, so by linking with Burnley Football Club in the community, and they open the doors to the other charities. So what I've actually done when we set it up, I wanted to make sure that the money I gave went quite local and went into communities. Uh, local community projects. So 50% of the money I've raised is going to Burnley Football Club in the community and we're, we've got our own mechanism that we're just setting up now to distribute that. So there'll be a kind of mini tender process for um, for local community uh, sort of organisations and groups in Burnley to apply for that. And then the other 50% is going out to the other uh, 19 Premier League clubs. Uh, so that's what we've drawn up at the start of the season because I wanted to engage the other clubs as well. You know, there's, there's always... Um, rivalries in football and it gets a bad rep for uh, for violence so I wanted to kind of dispel that and show like, there is a lot of unity in football as well and there is a lot of common ground between football fans and I, and I think that's something that never really gets uh, underlined in the media maybe the Women's World Cup is doing a good job of that at the moment but uh, uh, and I think last year's World Cup did a good job of that as well uh, but yeah I think there's there's a lot more to football as a as a to be part of a progressive charitable sector, it's definitely it's definitely a, a a good a good starting point. I think it's it's absolutely incredible, Scott. The the fundraising, um, kind of the, the achievement of, of raising sixty thousand pounds. I'm a fundraiser, and and I recognise that that's going to be hard for anyone to do off their own bat, as you did. So, are, what, what was the breakdown of um, of support? Was it largely um, lots and lots of people giving small amounts, or did you get some large donations? How was it? How did it work? And how did you kind of you galvanise everyone to support you at that level? Um, yeah, in the end, it was 
probably a good mix. I think at the end I was only on about 35,000 around the last game. And then I had a £10,000 collection from the players at Burnley. So they they gave him just over ten thousand pound, and then the club matched in about five thousand pound. Then I had another uh, private donor that gave ten thousand pound as well, which I think was a matching scheme through his work process. So I had a few big hitters come in, uh, but I most of it was small smaller amounts. Uh, again, I mean, if you look at it, there's probably about on my just giving page, there's probably about one thousand, I think one thousand one hundred people in the end that donated. I mean, there was some offline donations as well. Um, but I'd gone through the my kind of promotional line was that I, I was my target was thirty eight thousand pounds and that was the average attendance of a Premier League game. So I thought I was saying to the public, you know, one stadium full of one Premier League game stadium can give one pound each, then we can hit the thirty eight thousand pound target. So, but in effect, there was only a thousand people donated. Um, and so I was way off the mark, the mark of getting 38,000 people to donate, which is, it's a massive uh, uh, sort of challenge to, to get to reach that many amount of people. Um, and it's very difficult for an individual case to do that. I mean, to get to that sort of level of people, you, you need to be on um, something like Children in Need or uh, one of those other, you know, just with massive media behind you really I didn't push the media at the start because I wanted to make sure that I could actually do the runs and um, so we, we got, I got good local media like the local newspapers and things but I was also aware that Burnley's a town of 75,000 people and there's pockets only run so deep so I really wanted to sort of uh, touch, reach, reach out to people across the country and eventually I got some uh, national media and then it kind of went up from there. You can kind of see the uh, the the graph go pretty much straight up. As soon as the BBC ran an article on me, I was, you know, in the two or three days after that, uh, you know, there's two or three thousand pounds came in pretty quickly from a lot of different readers um, of the BBC website article. But um, so you you kind of see that, you know, that you do need media to get something massive like that. It's, I mean, the irony is of having done fundraising, you can apply for apply for a lottery fund or something in and you can you know you can you can get a five hundred thousand pound grant you know by writing a good proposal. Uh, and and I spent sort of you know nine months money to get sixty thousand pounds and obviously I'm way more prouder of the sixty thousand pound that did through the running than I would if if I won a five hundred thousand pound diffid grant or something like that, which I'd kind of done before in my past life. So um but for the for the people in the street, yeah, like giving giving a pound or giving ten pound is that's that's the target, and it's it's a, you need a lot of a lot of ten pounds to get up to sixty thousand. That's incredible, and it's nine months. You said nine months of your life, and um, and an awful lot of uh, effort in terms of the the actual running and probably the marketing as as well and the fundraising. What what did you learn from from this, and and what was the kind of the biggest challenge and the the most enjoyable thing about the the challenge? Well, at a time where Britain saw divided, it definitely sort of uh, galvanised my faith in humanity and or in British humanity. You know that I I met some amazing people and I was welcomed with open arms from 
you know, from football fans across the country and from other people. So I really gained that. And personally, I sort of learned to, to trust people a lot more, you know, where I'd been a bit paranoid of going through some depression. And uh, so I, I really learned that, you know, it's people will help you if you do ask, you know, for things. Uh, so I was always a bit backward at coming forward with that. And uh, so... And that always one of my mates says, like, cheeky, cheeky kids eat more sweets. So but to be, be an entrepreneur in the sector is, is kind of, uh, you know, is essential. And to be able to ask people for things when you are doing something quite mammoth like I was doing uh, is okay. You know, to ask people is fine. Uh, so I gained confidence in that side as well. But, but on the other side, yeah, I, I went to so many cool places in Britain, uh, ran through so many small towns and uh, pathways and cycle paths and places, you know, saw so much beauty across the country that I'd never seen before uh, so that was that was an added bonus and yeah strengthened my running a little bit as well uh, but I've actually got an injury at the moment so I'm feeling like uh, luckily I got injured after the after the challenge was over but um, yeah it's uh, multiple levels so it's very nuanced in, in something as big as this in, in the different aspects you get out of it and so so what's next for you Scott what are your what are your plans now well, I'm setting up a Runaway Foundation, so basically I want to do a couple more challenges uh, in the future. So I, to do that, I need to be able to be better prepared. You know, preparation is everything, and uh, I basically had about two or three months to prepare this last challenge, and when I was kind of on the start line, I had no money, I had, I had no idea where I was really going to stay that night, and, and it was very well, very <laughs> bad example of... of how not to prepare for something as mammoth as I did, but I wouldn't have changed it. But uh, for the first time experience, that's how it had to be. But for the next time, I'd, I'd be, uh, I'm setting up the foundation so that I can bring in some strategic partners to do a bigger run. So I've got my eye on uh, running to the World Cup, um, if it is in Qatar or wherever it is in 2022. Uh, so that'd be another sort of three or 4,000 mile challenge. And uh, hopefully doing some other smaller challenges around and then doing some more community work uh, in the Burnley area. I, I really do appreciate the local support I got from this. And I think without local support, um, it wouldn't have happened how it did. I had local businesses paying for my accommodation and uh, sponsoring sort of individual runs. Um, so I, was, I, got, I want to give quite a bit back to the local community. So trying to uh, work with some um, with some local enterprises here as well for uh, for future future endeavours, working with schools, etc., and also looking at uh, virtual platforms as well for for running and uh, and cycling on, online. I think sort of one of the untouched, not untouched, but the last sort of final frontiers of exercise is virtual. Um, there's so many running clubs now. This park run is amazing. There's there's so many good things out there that are kind of free and great for community empowerment and for mental and physical health and well-being. So there's so many good stuff that's out there. One, just one aspect that's interesting for me is definitely that intersection between sport and the, the charity sector and seeing where that's going with, uh, especially with football and moment and been so much money around. Uh, I mean, it's, there's not as much money in running around as there is in football, but uh, just seeing where that intersection is. So it's, it's interesting. That's an interesting thing that I want to explore and explore in that kind of sport for change, which has already kind of, always kind of been there in many ways. But I think... Uh, there's uh, in the new younger generation. There's uh, there's massive challenges towards mental and physical well-being, but there's also sort of um, there's also sort of massive opportunities as well. Scott Cunliffe, thank you so much for contributing to Charity Chat. Thank you. 
there we go, dear listener. A big thank you there to Scott Cunliffe for his time and telling us about his amazing challenge. And also being very open about mental health. I really appreciate that. And uh, talking about his experiences and how he's overcome some of those challenges that he's faced himself. And uh, it was also good to talk about running. So apologies to anyone out there listening who's not in any way interested in running. But uh, it was a good device to um, to kind of look at what he was doing and uh, and why he did it. So uh, I think you'll appreciate that. But yeah, a fantastic example of a very inspiring uh, appeal for funds from uh, donors. And uh, it was very interesting to me to see how Scott had taken something that he enjoyed, coupled that with a cause that he really wanted to support, and then built a very, very successful event out of that. And I think that's something that we can all take something from. If we're not behind the thing that we're trying to get funding for, then uh, it looks like it's going to be an uphill struggle. But on the flip side, if we are, if we really engage and love what we do, then uh, it makes it easier, especially given how hard fundraising generally is. It must be a, a thing that we really do require. So, uh, yeah, a big thank you to Scott, and a big thank you to you, dear listener, for listening to this podcast. hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear from you either way. If you'd like to give us some constructive feedback, we're open to that. Awesome praise, we're very much open to that too. Please do get in touch with us through the website, charitychat.org.uk. If you've got any interesting ideas for podcast episodes or if you'd like to be involved in some way, please do get in touch. We're all amateurs here, we're all volunteers, and uh, we'd uh, very much like more support from, um, from you listeners uh, and become one of the contributors to the show. That'd be fantastic. Do get in touch with us again through the website, charitychat.org.uk. All of our social media channels are on there as well, so you can find Facebook and Twitter on there. And, uh, yeah, it's just left for me to thank you uh, for listening. Thank uh, Scott for taking part. And also thank all of our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Check it out, charitychat.org.uk. And uh, also our, our yard photography for the lovely photographs on our website. Have a look at those. And finally, Forest of Fools, last but not least, who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from us. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.